all of those sports governing organizations have, I think, come dangerously close to not just destroying their own credibility, but their actual sports. What they have done to international sport is, is it's a travesty, really. Hello, and welcome to our summer season of On Assignment, the podcast that brings you inside Columbia Journalism School for conversations with some of the award-winning journalists who visit our students. I'm Abby Wright. I run the prizes department here at Columbia with my colleague, Lisa Cohen, who's here with me. Hello, Lisa. Hi, Abby. Lisa is the director of the DuPont Columbia Awards. She's an adjunct professor here at the school and author and more. So much more, Lisa. Thank you very much. Uh, well, it's summertime, and for our first summer season episode, we actually busted out, and we went off campus for this month's podcast. Yeah, our building is under construction, so we decided to take a field trip in honor of our upcoming July 1st DuPont Awards deadline. We went on down to HBO to visit one of our 2018 DuPont winners. Yeah, there we caught up with uh, HBO Real Sports correspondent David Scott, and David has won two DuPont Awards at Real Sports for his reporting on the Olympics and on the World Cup. Which the World Cup is, of course, happening right now, so it was a good moment to catch up with him and get his take on the sports scene today. Before Real Sports, David actually won two more DuPonts during his producing days at ABC News, which we'll talk about, and it's where Abby and I both first met him as colleagues. We talked about David's career, and we got tips on how to prepare for really tough sit-down interviews. And we got to hear about his recent travel down to the Chechen capital of Grozny, where he interviewed strongman Razman Kadyrov, an interview that itself made some news. And now let's take a listen to an edited version of our conversation with HBO Real Sports correspondent David Scott. David Scott, thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you so much for coming. We, we rarely get uh, such visits. We are having a conversation today with David Scott, a multiple DuPont winner, to talk about his amazing work and to encourage everyone to enter their best work for the 2019 DuPont Awards. What, what's the actual deadline again? <laughs> Our deadline right is July 1. July 1. So get those <laughs> entries in. Get them in. You did some great reporting about FIFA a few years ago. I believe, was that, was that a DuPont winner? Yes, it was. Yeah. That was Price your first on-camera on piece, that right? That was. That was my very first on-camera piece. So tell us uh -huh. about that story. Now with the World Cup coming up, we're, all, yeah. we're reminded again of all right. the follies of FIFA. Right, right. Talk a little bit about where what story was. Yeah, well, doing. Doha sort of rises out of the sands, <laughs> you know, like, like, you know, completely artificial city. Uh, and on the outskirts of it, are this huge encampment of migrant laborers in, in a place called the Industrial City. And it's just vast wasteland of cinder block buildings in which hundreds of thousands of men are housed uh, while they are there to, to work and, and do nothing but work um, and do all the work, frankly, in, in that society. It is part and parcel of that society. It cannot function without the legions of migrant laborers who, who live in squalor and work in suzerainty, really, uh, in, in that society. And so we did what we, what we try and do, which is go in quietly and manage a lot of risk in like a very short period of time and fly under the radar. And uh, one night uh, we, we drove to the camps 
and um, and spent some time interviewing the the workers, and uh, and we brought those findings to the government official who was essentially in charge of all of sport. Um, uh, wasn't prepared for us to have actually been there ourselves, um, and I think he thought he was going to be able to dismiss the reports as as unfounded rumor. That was a great moment in the interview when you when he says to you, well, if you have been to the camps, and you're like, actually, we have been to the camps. And his <laughs> face was just... Right. And then he wouldn't say whether he had ever been there. <laughs> so that's when the interview ended. That's not really a sports story. Um, and few of our stories, in the end, are about sports. They're, you know, about power or culture or, you know, triumph over adversity or, or human rights. Um, uh, I am struck, though, by the amount of corruption in these large international sports organizations, especially when sports are, all, are supposed to be all about fair play and following the rules and, you know, sportsmanship. There is such a lack of that in these big organizations. How hard is it, though, to investigate them, like the IOC, yeah. FIFA? What are some of the challenges when well, they, you're it's, trying it's, to... You know, they're, they're are, they, they essentially function without any controlling authority. That's why they hold up in Monaco or Lausanne or you know, uh, or places where they can essentially insulate themselves. And and I agree with you. I think they've all lost the plot. Um, and somehow, once they realize they could make enormous amounts of money through selling and managing media rights, mostly, uh, and skimming on top of those revenues, and not paying taxes on, and not paying any taxes and no accountability, and, and then to boot, the whole world wants you to come. And so you can, you know, establish a kind of, you know, royalty, really. They're a kind of international monarchy where they waltz into, you know, the world's capitals and, and they're treated like, uh, like, you know, kings and queens. Um, it's amazing. It's really amazing. And it's not, you know, it's IOC and World Cup, they sort of, you know, innovated the model. Um, but if you, you can go down the list of, uh, you know, the International Volleyball Federation, which has a you know an incredible palace on on the you know on, on the lakes of one of these European cities, um, racked with scandal, financial scandal. The recent uh, outgoing head of it um, was famous for two things. He walked away with like thirteen million dollars, and he um, he was the one that made the rule that if you booked a media deal, you could take ten percent. <laughs> and that's volleyball, you know. <laughs> uh, you, you wouldn't think the stakes were high enough. But all of those sports governing organizations have, I think, come dangerously close to not just destroying their own credibility, but their actual sports. Like that money is supposed to, that's supposed to do something. It's supposed to go to developing countries to develop the next generation of athletes and you know, name, your, name your region. And what they have done to international sport is, is it's a travesty, really. And it's become a bigger and bigger part of our work because it has become such a such a controlling idea in in the world of sports you know that you can you can you can be in it for strictly financial gain and often criminal financial gain so you won a, a dupont for the lords of the rings in 2018 the most recent and it was really a very wide sweeping series of reports around the globe about the transgressions of the IOC and what's happening right and another tough interview that you had with, I think his name was Hein Verbruggen. Yes. Um, 
tell us a little bit about that. I mean, how did you even get him to agree to sit down with you? Yeah. He was a, he had been a member of the Beijing Planning Committee. He was a he was a member of the the um, the IOC Executive Committee, and he was the exco member in charge of the Olympic Games, and uh, and so he was the the point person, soup to nuts. He was the interface uh, with Beijing, uh, and I have to say, like. People sit down, usually, when they sit down, it's out of hubris. It's because they're so tone deaf to the consequences of, of, their, of their work. Um, and, you know, I, I guess his, in his point of view, he's just so proud of it. Like, why wouldn't he want to talk about it? Um, he didn't expect us to, to go, you know, to go where we went. And, um, but why doesn't he expect you to go where you went? I mean, you now have a track so record. It happens so rarely now. And, you know, they're, in fairness, he's not watching real sports. Yeah. In my experience, you know, you'd be surprised how few people do the Google thing just to check on the off chance that, you know, yeah, you and I would, you know, it would be our first instinct. But, but I really think he, uh, he was genuinely proud of his association. Um, he couldn't answer any of those questions because he hadn't thought about, he wasn't aware of, of most of them. You know, the tainted milk scandal or Fang Zheng, the double amputee who was kept in under house arrest. Or he, he just, you know, like doesn't even get as part of the efficiency of working in those environments. So like, you know, all those problems are stopped before they get onto your radar. So he, he had a lot of, you know, he had a lot of deniability what I don't understand is, is why none of them realize they're going to run out of road at some point. They, they're not going to be able to, to, to maintain the lie uh, about the Olympic Charter the more of this they, they do. I, I'm amazed by the, the world of the sports governing body, the lords of sport as, as we like to call them now, and how simultaneously powerful and tone deaf um, they continue to be. Can you talk us a little bit through the process yeah. of being out in the middle of, like, nowhere? Well, this was a fascinating example um, because it is, um, you know, being a journalist in China, a foreign journalist in China, means that you have, uh, you have minders every day uh, from CCTV or, or some other agency, and they're on you, you know, 24-7. That's their job. Is they are supposed to be, you know, watching you around the clock. We had basically designed a, a production that had an above-board component and a parallel underground component. We had separate crews, separate personnel, um, oh. so that you know, so that the, the, the two would would never would never meet, and that we would have a chance of flying under the radar. Because while the Chinese surveillance system is vast, it is not all seeing and knowing. And if you're nimble and small enough, um, you can fly under the radar for a short period of time. So the under-the-radar team, did they have a, a minder as well? No, no, no. And what were they doing? So by day, we would, uh, we would go and we'd do the dog and pony shows. Um, and some of it is revealing. For example, you know, the plaza where the birds nest and the, and, you know, the water cube uh, are built was actually the site of demolished homes. And so it's interesting to, to walk those grounds with people, you know, with the, the minders and, and ask them, you know, what was here before? Um, so, you know, we tried to, like, turn the dog and pony shows to, to our advantage. But our real business happened after they dropped us off at the hotel in the evening. And we kind of acted like uh, lazy Americans that, you know, that, that uh, you know, we're sports guys. We just like, we just, you know, just going to go and, and, and have some drinks and relax. 
Um, and in fact, that's when we would, we would mount our underground operation and we would literally go to the basement and get into a van that was, you know, uh, being orchestrated by, by people from the Chinese political underground. And they would take us to the back room of a restaurant in some inconspicuous Beijing alley where a noted member of the, of the Chinese political opposition would, uh, would be waiting for us, having, having conducted her own mission to, to, to get to us undetected, um, literally getting on subway cars just before the doors close and all that stuff. In one of those cases, we took a train out to western China, to Henan province, to, to meet the family of, of a baby that died because uh, of the milk contamination. And um, the connection to the Olympics was that, that the right. news of that contamination was suppressed Correct. because Correct. they didn't want to have any negative coverage during exactly. the Olympics. Exactly. So we um, spend our time in China, you know, um, with this, this sort of parallel productions and made it just like sort of through the eye of the needle. Um, I don't think you can like carry that out for too long, but for short periods of time, you know, we've we figured out you know how to thread the needle. Yeah, I just want to hear a little bit about your time in Grozny. I know you guys were down there interviewing the head of Chechnya, which is amazing. How did you find the city of Grozny? Was it your first time there? It's interesting. So we we made two trips to to Grozny, and it was not a place that the corporation had any experience. Um, so we went through a long vetting process um, with, uh, with Time Warner Security and, um, and the State Department that didn't think we should go and, and, and that doesn't go there. And, and um, uh, you know, we talked to lots of reporters and, uh, and learned that Grozny itself is actually a safe city, a pacified city, safe if not free. And, you know, but really, I mean, the main risk is running afoul of your, of your hosts. And in that regard, it, it, it is an intimidating place and you, you have to really measure every step and every word very carefully. What were you doing there? Tell us a little bit about the story. Yeah, one of the ideas that, um, that Real Sports has really kind of innovated over a long period of time and that, and that we're really in love with is using sports as a lens to look at conflict zones. So we look for places to sort of where we can engage in sports but open a window onto the politics and culture of, uh, of a place that's been racked by conflict. And, uh, and in some ways bring that place into perspective, into focus for, yes, even the sports audience. <laughs> um, and so, you know, we had in, uh, in Chechnya um, the specter of this warlord dictator who is fanatical about sports and masterful in his use of it to rally and recruit support internally, to project power externally. And we found that what he was doing was sort of new and different. Lots of dictators use sports to aggrandize themselves and their governments. He's actually turned this professional MMA fight club into an, a, a branch of the dictatorship that actually funnels talent and personnel to the security services. So what is MMA? I mean, I don't know. I mm. kind yeah. of know what it mm -hmm, is, mm -hmm. but... Yeah. Well, it's interesting because, uh, you know, 250 years of war in Chechnya means that every man and boy is expected to be ready for war at any time. And so they have this font of fighter talent. And now they have a lucrative international sport into which they can funnel this talent. And this is MMA. This is mixed martial arts. Which is uh, which essentially to war as you it's can a get simulated simulated death match. So within five years at that point, 
Um, this fight club had swollen to five or 6,000 people, young men and boys in Chechnya, many of them dispossessed by all those years of war, uh, and looking for something to be a part of. You know, the elite MMA fighter makes a lot of money. Um, most of them make almost nothing, just enough to keep them in the sport. It's a really, you know, brief and brutal life uh, for an MMA fighter. But if you represent Ramzan Kadyrov, <laughs> you will want for nothing in, in an environment of previously endless deprivation. And that is just like, uh, you know, that is a deal that, that no one, no Chechen can resist. And so that's why, you know, men and boys are flocking to his club, just to be part of it. It's such a fascinating Venn diagram between military, military and sports and the militarization of sport. If ever there was a sport right. that right. it applied to, right, right. the MMA. And, and so, you know, we, we thought, you know, what, what a great way to sort of, you know, introduce the audience to the North Caucasus and, and their importance as a, as a, as a region geopolitically. Um, and, and if we could only, like, actually get to the man himself, it would be an amazing thing. And, um, and then, you know, a few months into our, our project, Nevaya Gazeta published the first stories about the gay purge. So we had this huge news story um, that was coinciding with our designs. The gay purge. Yeah. What, tell us what that is. Yeah. Uh, there are some very strong conservative currents in, uh, in, in Chechnya and Islam. And where those currents meet the old world of the Caucasus, um, you will find enormous hostility to, uh, to gay life, to the idea of it. It is a great mark of shame. Uh, for, for most Chechnyans, and the government has for a long time quietly and now publicly endorsed um, a purge of, of gay men from the Chechen population, and they mean it literally. And uh, they prefer that families do the killing rather than the government, and so what the purge looked like in practice was uh, kidnapping, uh, torture, they would, uh, they would find other suspects in the cell phone records of uh, their victims, and they would beat these men with an inch of their lives, put them in burlap sacks, and deliver them back to their families with the message to finish the job. They seemed to back off um, after uh, international uh, criticism, but the, the, the message is quite clear. It's an affront to the culture, to the religion, to the family, to the clan. It cannot stand. You know, it's just like, again, the kind of story that we're, we're, we're built to do and that we can almost uniquely do uh, through the lens of sports. In this case, using it as almost like a Trojan horse to get inside and then ask him the human rights questions. No, I know. Which watching you do that, I was amazed. I was wondering what was going through your mind <laughs> as you're asking that kind of question to that kind of person, because who knows what his response is going to be, right? Right, right. How well, do you prepare for that? Well, we had, um, in the, the first trip, we waited nine days for him to say yes. We covered the MMA tournament that he had sponsored at the time, which gave us like a really good look at what it looks like when he fills his stadium and juices everyone up on, on Chechen nationalism. So we waited for nine days, our visas ran out. We didn't want to be in the position of overstaying our visas, you know, in, in the Russian Federation. And so we, we left with our, you know, quite forlorn and defeated. And, uh, and then we came back and somehow convinced our bosses to let us go try again. And at about, you know, 
uh, two o'clock in the morning. We finally sat down in the you know state house on the on the palace grounds, and it was surreal. I, I couldn't almost believe it was happening. So who, how did the translation work? Lisa and I were talking about yeah. this. So yeah. you're asking questions in English. Who's translating your questions? And are you hearing in real time the unbelievably macho, intimidating things that he's responding? Or are you just pushing through your questions? Right, right. Well, um, uh, we go into the interview and thinking that we have 30 minutes. Because he says, um, you know, in 30 minutes, I've, I have to go make prayer. Um, so it sounded like a hard out. Right. Um, and then. Uh, because it's a translated interview, 30 becomes 15. So I, I'm now, I'm, I'm, I'm really, I'm really like, how are we going to get to, how are we going to get, you know, down my list? And you're saving in 15 minutes. Questions. And, and so you know, yeah, it's got to be yeah. sequence. And I'm trying to, you know, find a way to kind of, you know, soften him up, if not warm him up, so that he will engage in the, in the, in the real questions. He's speaking mostly in Russian. Um, but we, we did have to have a Chechen speaker there, and it's very, very hard to find a Chechen speaker who does not have complicated ties to the Chechen Republic. Um, and, uh, and so I didn't know exactly what the conversation was, but I could get the vibe <laughs> pretty well. When the question comes about the purge, he's like, okay, now we know what this is. And ironically, he just got fully engaged blew off making prayer, and this is what he wanted to talk about. He wanted to talk about the, his, you know, the acrimony with the West, and he wanted to talk about uh, the problem with, uh, with human rights activists and, uh, and the myth of the gay Chechen. Because there, there aren't any gay Chechens. Because there aren't any, which was his denial, except then he went on to say that, but if there, but if there were or are, their families should kill them essentially endorsed the practice of honor killing, which had been also reported by Novaya Gazeta as, uh, as, as part of this purge. And in that moment, I mean, even just being in Grozny seems pretty dangerous, but being inside the house of the most powerful man in that republic, I mean, did who you- Who kills people. Who kills people. Did you feel, how, how do you navigate yeah, that? Yeah, it's, um, you know, at, at this point, we were, we were all just so thrilled to have a shot at it because it didn't look like we were going to get one. Um, and, uh, and we're hopped up on adrenaline, and I'm being very careful not to be disrespectful. Um, uh, you know, we had no intention of insulting him or his religion or, you know, his, his family. Right, but from um, his point of view, I mean, he may be interpreting what you're saying any way he wants to. Absolutely, and, and, and who knows what to put past these people, right. you know? There was a moment of truth after the interview where the handler, the gatekeeper, was furious that we dared to ask these questions. He had walked off. We couldn't tell if he walked off in disgust or anger or contempt or if he was just done. Um, but the gatekeeper was, was scary. It took 45 minutes to calm him down because now he feels exposed. You know, he's right. the one that brought us into the, you know, into the, the you know, through the palace gates. Um, and, uh, and I think that conversation was critical because what you have to worry about isn't so much that the big leader is going to decide off with your head, it's that some knucklehead right. in the vast entourage who's looking for a way to ingratiate himself or he thinks he knows what the big leader wants is, is, you know, is going to do something stupid. And, um, and so we, you know, we, we calmed the gatekeeper down. Um, we went literally across the street back to the 
Grozny Star Hotel. You're wor are we worried about your your footage? Or? We were. We we had um, you know we we made multiple copies. Um, we used cameras that had multiple ports, and uh, and then we had an external recording device, just to hedge our you know ability to to, to save one copy. Um, and um, and we decided we were going to you know go back to the hotel and stay up the rest of the night and go straight to the airport. And lo and behold, we we got out of there. Um, and then in hindsight, you know, it occurred to us that um, I think he was very happy with the whole thing. From his point of view, he looked, you know, like a strong man extraordinaire. Yes. Which is probably, yeah. and yeah. he's a great yeah. surrogate for Vladimir Putin, and it's, you know, it served his agenda on several yes. levels too. In fact, even when the Kremlin said that he was taken out of context, he corrected them and said, oh, no, no, I said it, and I meant it. <laughs> so I think every, you know, it's all very calculated with him. The people who've written him off as a buffoon are wrong. Um, you know, it doesn't mean that he's not crazy, but he is not stupid. And, um, and, and, and what he has done now uh, in establishing himself as Putin's liaison to the Sunni Arab world is, is actually the most, I think, you know, the, the most dangerous thing that he's, uh, he's accomplished. So, David, tell us how you got your start in this wonderful business of journalism. And I, I understand you started at ABC, no? Or we knew at ABC. I did start at ABC. Um, uh, actually, my, the first part of my career was in New York City government. Uh, I spent eight years in uh, the borough president's office in Manhattan, the Human Rights Commission, the Board of Education, and I transitioned to, to journalism from there and um, got a foot in the door at ABC and was fortunate enough to work my way to the Brian Ross Investigative Unit in 1998. And I spent, um, I spent several years learning the discipline of investigative producing. And that's where I learned to do the hostile interview. At the feet of Brian Ross. At the feet of Brian Ross and, and Rhonda Schwartz and Vic Walter, his, you know, Dave Rummel, his, his veteran producers. Um, uh, they taught me everything I know, in truth. I, I think there's still, in the public mood, a desire for, you know, for accountability, accountability and, and that often means, you know, confrontation in, a, in an appropriate way, in a respectful way. Um, uh, and yet, you know, interview-driven formats are evaporating. Um, most of the news magazines have either gone by the wayside or turned into something else, you know. Um, true crime. And, true um, crime. Right. The murder next door or, you know, neighbors from hell or whatever it is. And, you know, we have all these new media forms, but we haven't really found one that, uh, that does what the, the old school news magazine, you know, still does well, which is, you know, sit across from someone and look them in the eye um, and turn TV into a lie detector. <laughs> um, is there a little list of tips or primer that you would give to someone who's interested in, in doing that kind of interview, like things to watch for and the way that your subject is reacting or when to turn the interview or how to ask the tough question in a respectful way? Those would be really yeah. useful pieces. Yeah, yeah. Um, it is, I would say, a, um, you know, a, a matter of practice. Um, it is a discipline. Um, I think, um, you know, the first thing I would say is like you have to discipline yourself to take the emotion out of it because uh, that's the great risk that you lose control of your of yourself and and it's um, and it's easy to do 
under those circumstances. And once you're uh, you're on that slippery slope, I, I think you know your your own credibility is at risk. And you know you can come away like you looking like the idiot. You know. Um, if your if your pitch isn't just right, and and uh, so I so I say, you know to like really discipline your emotions, um, you gotta have a really you know, good plan. Like we always plan, you know, and role play, and so we know, you know, we know where we want to turn the conversation, um, and uh, and so the first part is, is set up or soften up, and then there's the moment of truth, and you know, sometimes the subject decides, but you know, when we can control it, um, we know exactly where we want that to happen. You do role-playing, you actually have, you know, your producer oh, yeah. play the subject? I'll sit down with Josh Fine or, or Jordan Chronic or, or Joe Persky, and, uh, and he'll play the subject, and I'll play me, and, and, and we will, you know, talk through how this could go. It's hard to do in a case like Kadyrov because, frankly, no one can, <laughs> no one can get into his, his head. Um, but um, but we have uh, but we always have like you know we always have a plan. We always know that we may have to throw it out at some point, um, um, and we and we almost always go through at least one role play, often more. Nine days in Grozny, we had endless role plays. <laughs> so preparation and and uh, and, and strategy. Um, and it's like if he says this, then I can say this. But if he says this, I can say this. Right. Right. Exactly, exactly. You were a producer and then you became a correspondent on camera. Tell us about that transition. Yeah, uh, I was a career producer. I'd come here as a producer at Real Sports. And they were, they were looking to mix up the talent pool. Um, and when they invited me. When you came here, did they, was that part of it? Um, you know, if I get an opportunity, I'd like to go on it. No, no, I came, actually I came, I was, I was a producer here for two years and then I left. And shortly after I left, they, they called me in to, to do an audition. I kind of did it on a, on a, on a lark. Um, and, uh, and I remember my, my, uh, one of my colleagues, Tim Walker, he played the role of the head of the International Bodybuilders Foundation. And I was like taking him on on steroids. Um, and, uh, and I, you know, immodestly say I, I crushed him. <laughs> uh, and um, and that's, how, that's how it started. And, yeah, it's been four years, and it's been uh, it's been an amazing, like late career miracle for me, um, to add like a whole other dimension to my work. And I regard myself as now like one of the luckiest people in the whole business. Um, Can you talk a little bit about what the dis the difference is between producing and being yeah. a correspondent? Because I don't think people <laughs> don't really know. Right, right. Um, well, um, to be um, just to start with the, the the superficial. You've probably heard this. Um, an old ABC News producer uh, told me it once. The relationship between the correspondent and the producer is like that of the, the dog and the fire hydrant, but they both think they're the dog. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, and so, you know, I think what a lot of people don't know is that there is, um, there is in, the, in the partnership between producer and correspondent this almost um, this creative and control tension. And, it's not always a bad thing, um, but it is always a thing. What producers do is, is, is manage the whole process, and so the correspondent, you know, has to submit to that. Uh, I'll tell you, you know, we, um, depending on the conditions, uh, things can get really, really difficult and ugly. Uh, Jordan Chronic and I had our first fight in four years on, on, uh, at Everest Base Camp, which was strictly uh, uh, the result of, of, uh, of altitude sickness and, 
and uh, and and just you know the, the crushing pressure of, uh, of of being in such an extreme environment. Um, um, but it is you know uh, on the other hand it is it is the reason that like nothing we do is is individual here, um, and there's a there's a kind of built-in checks and balance to that. When you get it right, when you can work with people constructively in that kind of partnership, um, even under you know extreme conditions, um, it makes things better. Although it, uh, um, there's, all this, there's this blood, sweat, and tears on on the floor every single time. <laughs> and so, what would you say distinguishes the two sets of of job uh, Jobs, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, the producer has to manage the production, all aspects of it, you know, often with like razor thin margins of time. You know, if we're in the field for more than a week or two, that's a lot for, for our format to bear financially and, and, and just time-wise. That's why the producer's telling everybody what to do. Because, he, you know, he or she's got the job of managing the whole thing and making sure it comes out the other, it comes out the other end. It's really, really, really hard. I mean, all these jobs are hard, but, but that, under stressful circumstances, is really hard. The correspondent has to perform, um, you know, has to psychically prepare to be in that moment. I'm still early in my career as a correspondent, so I can tell you that, like, it takes preparation. Like, maybe some people do it naturally, but when I'm thinking about being in that moment, um, it's kind of all I can think about. Um, so I can't be managing, you know, the logistics at that moment. Even just, you know, kind of digesting the editorial is difficult, you know, when you're in that process, like getting into the, the moment. Or you mean the interview? The interview. And, and in particular, the, you know, the interview of interviews. You know, the one in the piece that the, you know, the whole thing is going to turn on. Um, and we're going to get one shot at it and it'll be very easy for, you know, it to not happen the way we need it to happen. And then in our, in our shop, we both work all ends of the editorial. Because there again, that's where we like sort of, you know, we can, we can check our own and each other's biases and, and we can make sure that we are, you know, that we are doing our due diligence in terms of standards. Um, you need the collaboration for that. And by the way, I, I, I didn't want this to end without saying, I feel like we are all proving the profession's worth right now. Um, with the disruption that's gone on. I'm not talking about the technology. That's the least of it now. I'm talking about uh, like turning the whole thing on its head where everybody's publishing, you know, all kinds of stuff. And every, what are facts every, and what is Yeah, and what recording. are facts and, and, and what's happening in the White House and, and the march of the autocrats all over the world. Um, I feel like we're all so desperately defending our profession um, and we need some renaissance of standards. And, you know, it's one thing that I, I, you know, I appreciate about, you know, where I get to work um, is, like, people get that, you know. Even the people that don't work on the show, Peter Nelson, who runs HBO Sports, um, you know, really gets that. And, and Bryant, God bless him, you know, he's kept this thing going for 23 years now. You know, that's like a dynasty in television terms. Is, is really like his heft and his and his vision that um, that this thing will not be distracted by what's fashionable, you know that we will stick to what we do without music, without fancy graphics. Um, it's really it's the reporting and the storytelling, and that's who we are. That's who we're going to be as long as his name's on the thing. 
Um, so, you know, I'm lucky to be in a place like this, but there are a lot of people out there, you know, who are just roiling. And so I just, I, I just hope for some like great renaissance in the core standards that, you know, that, that drive this whole thing. Actually, the things that the DuPont celebrates and honors. We were thrilled to have Brian up at the ceremony in January as well. It was great to see Brian Gumbel up at Columbia. Um, final bits of advice for our journalism students? Well, I think, you know, it's, um, it's going to be frustrating. It's going to be painful. You know, you're going to have to suffer for your art. Um, but, you know, please remember that it is easier than it's ever been in the history of human civilization to get your work in, in print, on the air, on the web. Um, you know, it is so far, you know, more accessible now than, than at any other time before. I'm grateful for that great democratization of media and, uh, and, uh, and you guys don't really have any excuses. You know, you can start building a body of your own work right now and you can get it published, you know, right now. Um, and that is just an amazing opportunity that, you know, frankly, no other generation before you has had. So have at it. <laughs> David Scott, thank you so much for talking to us Thank today. you for listening and allowing me to talk. What a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. That was just wonderful. Thank you again to HBO Real Sports and David Scott. It was really informative, and it's just great to listen to someone so passionate about their work. And I cannot believe that Kadyrov story. Yeah, it's harrowing. And I cannot believe our DuPont deadline is just days away, Lisa. <laughs> Act now. Don't be late. Enter your best work. DuPont.org. Deadline July 1. This episode of On Assignment was produced by Sarah Wyman with help from Lauren Marigil Dos Santos and special thanks to Catherine Sullivan. Our music is by Dylan Nowak. Join us next month for another edition of On Assignment.